our study. Let's pray. God our Father, thank you for giving us this opportunity to begin a new journey through the book of Job. It is relevant for us these days. The world has a lot of evil and suffering, and many times even the righteous suffer for no good reason, no known good reason. And how do we relate to you? How do we understand you when we are experiencing these things, or someone is? We pray that you guide us through studying this wonderful yet difficult book. We pray that we will deepen our knowledge of the, the transcendent, the, the, uh, the truth, and the divine, so that our life in this mundane world will not become meaningless, and it will become will become more peaceful and no longer agitated. We pray in Jesus Christ's holy name. The book of Job, relating to God while suffering in life. Do we always, all of us have some kind of suffering? Loud and <laughs> clear. <Yeah. laughs> we suffer all from something, right? Either, let's say, lack of money, lack of health, okay, social injustice, right? And... Uh, and unknown reasons, okay? There are sufferings we all experience. It. But how do we relate to God in this situation? We all believe that God is both great and good, but how could he allow this kind of evil and suffering? And that is a very legitimate question, and that it deserves an answer. However, how did God answer it through the book of Job? You're going to find out it's a very interesting way. Okay. Now, today is an introduction. Okay. So, we're just talking about the book, the background. Okay. We're not getting into the book yet. Next week, we will. Okay. So, Job, the name. Okay. Our church had difficulty displaying the message on the electric sign, electronic sign that we are preaching the book of Job. If we say, we just said Job, people might come looking for a job. So we decided to put on preaching Job. But people are asking if we need a new pastor for the preaching job. So it didn't work out well either. <laughs> um, I don't know. We just leave it as is. Okay. If there are people who apply for the job, we say, well, associate pastor, maybe. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the book of Job is named after its main character, who is pronounced Job in English, Job in Hebrew. And in Hebrew, it has a silent uh, letter, Aleph, uh, at the, right before the, the, the U, the U. So it's Job. So you have something, Job. Okay, so in uh, uh, Akkadian, which is the language of the Babylonians, once a universal language of the world. Uh, it was called Ayabum. Ayabum. Okay, so there's a uh, yob. Okay, that's it has that. And uh, an Egyptian source called the Excretion Text of Sesostris III, who ruled between 1541 to 1503 BC. This is the newest 
result for the intermission chronology. As we know, intermission chronology has big variations. This is uh, an understanding that I have uh, accepted, okay, and it has good astronomical support, okay. So, uh, in this Egyptian source, it listed two officials in Moab. You see, Egypt was a great country. It, its king is called the Great King. There are small kingdoms around. They actually uh, ask the Egyptian pharaoh to, to appoint them, the officials, okay. So, they have certain clout, okay, and uh, um, Sesostris III, he appointed two officials in Moab. Their names are Ayabum, Job, and Zabulanu, which is basically Zebulun in the Bible, a namesake of a son of Jacob. Remember one of the tw 12 tribes? <laughs> it's called Zebulun. Okay, so interesting. Okay, a person named Job from Moab lived in the time of Sesostris III at that time. Could that be the real biblical job? Okay, well, let's see. Now, here is the geography. You can see the river Jordan, right? And you see the two lakes. One is the Lake of Galilee, and one is the Dead Sea. Okay, so west side of it is the kingdom of Israel, and then kingdom of Judah. That's the uh, land of Canaan proper. And there was a certain place in the upper uh, uh, area in the eastern side, it was added to the promised land for Israel because that's the land of the, where are they? Um, the Amorites. They, 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 they attacked the Israelites when they tried to uh, cross over, so it, Israel destroyed them and then owned their land. So that was an added land to Israel. It was not original part of the promise. And in that part, you can see the kingdom of Ammon, the kingdom of Moab, and the kingdom of Edom. And above them, the uh, uh, Arameans, Aram. Uh, Aram includes the Damascus, okay, today's Syria. Okay. So this whole land in the east, from Damascus all the way down to Petra, okay, from Aram to Edom, that's called the land of Uz. That's where, well, supposedly Job was from. So somewhere east of Israel today. Okay, and includes Syria and uh, and Jordan. Okay, so Job lived in the land of Uz. Okay, in Hebrew, which included today's Jordan and northern Syria, or the ancient lands of Edom, Moab, Ammon, and Aram. Job's friend Eliphaz, the name means God is fine gold, is a namesake of a son of Esau. He lived in Teman. A town in Edom, which was named after Teman ben Eliphaz ben Esau. So Esau had a son named Eliphaz, who had a son, Teman. For, for this person, there was a town named Teman. And Job's friend Eliphaz is from there. So he is a descendant of Esau, okay, from the land of Edom. Okay. And then Job's friend Bildad, which means Baal or Baal or the Lord, has loved. Okay. And Dad is like David, you know, love. Okay. So Bildad, Baal has loved. Okay. Bildad was a descendant of Shua, okay, a son of Abraham from Keturah. Remember Abraham, this old man after the death of his wife uh, at 127 
and Abraham was nine years older, so he was 136. He married again, young woman, Keturah, and he had six sons from her before he died at the age of 175. Okay, the old man has a lot of virality, I guess. Um, and these six sons were later sent out of the promised land, and they lived in the land of the east. So, the land of Uz, <laughs> maybe Aram, <laughs> okay? So, um, that's where Bildad was from. And Jacob's friend Zophar, uh, which means a young bird, was a descendant of Naamah. And uh, if you search the word in the Bible, the first you're going to find out that Naamah was a sister of Tubal-Cain, the pre-flood blacksmith. So don't believe people say, okay, if you find iron, it has to be from the age of iron, which is be after the age of bronze, it's after the age of stone. Okay. But that is a, well, it's very, I would say, it's a theory based on a lot of presumptions that uh, these modes of production progress from one to the other. Actually, there may be overlaps. Actually, before the flood, there, was, there were blacksmiths. Okay. So anyway, uh, the, it's not likely that <laughs> this uh, Zophar can be traced to the Naama of the pre-flood. Okay? But remember, uh, the first wife of Solomon, the mother of Rehoboam, was named Re-Ama, Naama the Ammonite from 1 Kings 14.21. So um, when... When Solomon was a young man, he was ordered by his father to go and live as a shepherd for a short time to experience his father's life. And at that time, he met a young shepherdess and fell in love with her. And for her, he wrote, he married her and he wrote Song of Solomon. <laughs> so I think this Naama was the real object of um, the Shulamite. The, which means Solomon's woman. A Shulamite means Solomon's woman okay. in the book of Song of Solomon. And uh, if you check the age of uh, uh, Rehoboam, he was 41 years old when he became king. And Solomon was only about 60 years old. So uh, he was born when Solomon was, let's say, 18 years old, very young. So uh, that's why I believe his mother was the first wife of Solomon. But anyway, um, uh, Zophar is probably an Ammonite. So you see, these three friends are from Edom, Ammon, and Aram, probably. And then Job was from Moab. It's, it makes sense, right? Okay, all right. How about Job, his time? Job lived 140 more years after this, after the event in Job, okay? according to Job 42, 16. He had seven sons and three daughters as in the beginning. Okay? He had 14,000 sheep, uh, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys in, at the end. Okay? But they are all twice as many as he had in the beginning, which was 4,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys. You see, all the numbers are exactly double. 
Okay. And the text actually said, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Okay. So uh, the rabbis who wrote Seder Olam okay, in chapter 3, Seder Olam is uh, the Jewish understanding of biblical chronology. Okay. It was written in the second century, uh, circa 150. Okay. And uh, it's pretty close to the biblical time, right? just about a 100 years after Jesus. Okay. And uh, they figured that God doubled the years of that Job lived. So he lived 70 before and 140 later. Together, 210. Okay. Well, it's a legitimate guess. Okay, and the lifespan of Job fits exactly with Israel's national sojourn in Egypt, which was 210 years, not 430. Okay, well, I'm talking about the short sojourn theory. There's a long sojourn theory of either 430 or 400, and short sojourn theory is either 210 or 250. I'm for the 210 because I have, well, Good reasons, okay? And uh, the 430 is from Abraham leaving Ur. The 400 is from Abraham having a seed who sojourned for 400 years, while his seed was Isaac. So from Isaac's birth till the Exodus was 400 years. From exiting Ur was 430 years. Okay. And uh, um, uh, this will get us a, you know, you can... If you take this short sojourn theory, you can proceed all the way to the creation, and I have astronomical you know, confirmation for that. And if you know the date of creation well, then you have to know the date of second coming, 6,000 years later. Okay. So uh, these rabbis, they think this fit means that's exactly when Job lived. Okay? <laughs> the rabbis like to do that. Okay? This is what it happens. We think so, it is so. Well, though the rabbis in Seder Olam seemed overly dogmatic on a matter of thin evidence, the in this case, the conclusion is reasonable. I will give you reasons okay, in the following. Job's life has similarities to the patriarchs. First of all, in the lifespan, if he lived 210, Abraham lived 175, Isaac 180, Jacob 147, and Joseph 110. You see, they are reducing, but generally, uh, after the flood, you can see um, the lifespan dropped from a stable 1,000 to exponentially to 120. Okay? And uh, Moses lived 120, but when he wrote Psalm 90, he said, we live 70 years away for a strong 80. I would say he was between 70 and 80 when he wrote that. <laughs> and uh, uh, so you can see the lifespan dropped exponentially until it reaches, you know, the ideal is 120, but most people just about 78. Uh, at from the time of Moses, that was 1400 BC. The flood was 2200 BC, so it's about 800 years later it drops to be, you know, our days uh, situation. Okay, and uh, uh, that's like the patriarch's time. Okay, so. His lifespan fits the patriarch's time. And uh, he was making sacrifices for his own family as a high priest. Okay, That is before the establishment of any national you know, sacrifice center, worship center, you know, and priestly system. So that fits the patriarch's time also. And uh, uh, however, Job's time was between the patriarchs and Moses. 
First of all, his friend Eliphaz was a descendant of Esau's grandson, and Bildad was a descendant of Shua, Abraham's son, from Keturah. And so he must be a few generations after Abraham, or after, after Jacob's time, actually. And the tradition says that Moses wrote the book of Job, plus the Torah and plus Psalm 90. Okay? So it must be before uh, Moses. And the language of Job was so ancient, or such a distant dialect, that the uh, LXX, the uh, Septuagint translators, those Jews in Alexandria who translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek, they, they gave up uh, 400 lines in translation. You know, it's, it's poetry. They're in lines, right? Doublets. So they gave up about 400 lines because they don't understand. They just said, well, let's just skip it. <laughs> it, it tells us that the, the book must be ancient, right? Yeah. And, um, or distant, okay? So here is a chart about the possible timeline related to Job, Israel, and the Bible. From the top, uh, it's about the two chronological periods. One is called the early Israelite period, from Abraham leaving Ur to the Exodus. Another is from the uh, Exodus to the division of the kingdom. So that's called the middle Israelite period. Okay. Uh, Israel, uh, Abraham left Ur in 1876 BC. He stayed five years in, in Haran, then another 25 years from the age of 75 to 100, okay, in Canaan, before he had Isaac, okay. Then Isaac was 60 when he had the twin, he had Jacob. And Jacob was 130 when he entered Egypt. So altogether, you can see that there are 220 years for patriarchal sojourn, mostly in Canaan, except that five years in Haran, okay. And then you take that off the 400 and 430, then you get 210 years in Egypt. And Joseph was 39 years old when uh, Israel entered Egypt. How do we know that? Well, he was sold into Egypt at the age of 17. He became the prime minister at the age of 30, right? And then afterwards, he predicted there were there would be seven bad years and seven seven good years and seven bad years, right? So after the seven good years, he was 37. And then after two bad years, his brothers came in to beg for food twice. Then Israel came in, right? So he was 39 when Israel came into Egypt. So if you count back, how old was Jacob when he had Jake, Joseph? 130 minus 39? What do you get? You get 91. That's pretty old, <laughs> right? And uh, when did... Uh, uh, Jacob has Joseph as the 11th son. Well, that's in the second seven-year period of his service to Laban. You see, he served his uncle Laban for his two wives, okay? Uh, seven years each. After the first seven years, he was married. He, he thought it's for Rachel, but actually it was Leah. So when he opened up his eyes, you know, next day, behold, it was Leah. <laughs> Look at what is, you know, the Chinese will say the rice was cooked. <laughs> so he could not regret. <laughs> so his, his uncle and father-in-law says, well, we only marry out the, the younger when the older one is out. Since she has weak eyes, nobody wants her, we'll give her to you. 
and then you have both, okay, a week later. So he had both. And from then on, he started to have children. These two wives and two maids, they start to drop children, you know. So on the seventh year, he had 11 sons, okay. So Joseph was born in the end of the second seven-year period. So you take away 14 years from 91, what do you get? You get 77. That's when Jacob stood at the well and met Rachel. He was not a young man. What do you see in the Sunday school pictures? A young man at the well, right? Meeting a young woman. Well, Rachel might be a young woman, but Jacob was not a young man. Okay, was seventy-seven. Sometimes these Sunday school materials, you know, Jesus you know, had three magis. We think it's three magi. Well, actually, the Bible never said three magi, right? It says three kinds of gifts. <laughs> and uh, uh, um, which one on the on which side of Jesus? You know, crucified. Which thief believed in Jesus? Most people will say the one on the right side. But well, the Bible never said that either. <laughs> so sometimes these are just cultural things. You get it, okay? You better really look at the Bible. You know what the Bible says. You don't know what it didn't say, okay? But these age you can derive from the Bible, so you know actually, and, and therefore don't say the wrong thing. Yeah. So Joseph lived totally 110 years. So after Israel entering Egypt, Joseph lived another 71 years. He died in 1585 BC. Okay. When he was alive, the Israelites were well treated in Egypt, right? They prospered and they grew you know, fast. And the Egyptians became alarmed. Okay. Uh, and then after maybe one or two generations, there was a Pharaoh who knew not. Joseph, and he became the pharaoh of oppression, right? And now we, by our uh, knowledge of Egyptian chronology and the new chronology, and we can find who it is. It's Sesostris III, okay? And uh, um, the, the beginning of the slavery, we can derive it from the age of Miriam. We know that Moses was 80 years old at the time of the Exodus, right? And his brother Aaron was three years older than him, according to the Bible. His sister Miriam was another three years older, okay, according to Jewish tradition. Okay? And uh, um, Miriam, the name means bitter. Why do you name your daughter bitter? You wouldn't do, no father would like to do that unless they really feel that life is bitter, right? So it's legitimate to presume that um, Miriam was conceived in the year of the beginning of the slavery. And that would be 1533 B.C. It happens to be 330 years before the end of the, uh, the illegal king um, Abimelech. So if Israel became enslaved by Egyptians uh, in 1533, they became enslaved by their own sin in, in um, what, 1143, 390 years later.
By the way, 390 years is a measure of the rise of Israel. If you count the internal thing, it's from slavery to the, the first illegal king, 390 years. If you count it externally, it's from the conquest, 1400, to their great king, David. So 1400 to 11, um, 1110, 390 years. Okay? So the, the rise of Israel is two measure of th 390 years. And then the fall of Israel is also 390 years. If you come from Gideon to the time of the exile of Israel, the northern tribes, that's 390 years with a gap. David and Solomon's time were not counted because they didn't commit the religious sins. Okay? So uh, it's interesting. All these numbers make sense. They, they match. Okay, So God gave them a time of rise and time of fall, and they match. Okay? And uh, God is God of beauty. Symmetry, okay, and uh, um, anyway, the you can say that Israel's experience in the slavery of Egypt has similarity to Job's experience in the events that happened to him. Job's suffering was it because of his own sin? No, it's the no known good reason, right? And he was living righteously. He prospered. That's not his fault. Right? It's not a sin to pro for prospering. <laughs> it's just being blessed. That's not a fault. But others who become jealousy, jealous, well, then that's what happened to Israel. They prospered in Egypt. They multiplied in number. Is it their fault? No, it's not their fault. So they got into slavery in Egypt, is it due to their sin? It's not. Later, when they were taken to Babylon, that's because of their sin. Okay, But when they got into slavery in Egypt, that's not due to their sin. It's the suffering of the righteous. Okay, And uh, guess what? If Moses knew that he was, well, he was a prince of Egypt, but he's also a Hebrew, would he be wondering why would my people suffer? Is there any good reason? There seems to be none. Now, what is God doing? You see? It was a legitimate question Moses would ask, just like what Job would ask. Thus, I believe God inspired the book of Job to prepare the Hebrews to face their suffering. Make sense? Similar experience. You know, and time-wise, it also matches. Okay, uh, Since the, the rabbis believe that Job lived in the 210 years of Israel in Egypt, so the 70-year event happened about the time of the death of Joseph. Okay, About 53 years later, the, uh, uh, um, the slavery began, and another 47 years later, um, that was when Moses was in, uh, in the wilderness, himself was experiencing uh, suffering not due to his own sin. Okay. So, uh, at the time, there's an overlap. When Moses was in, let's say, when he was in Egypt, first 40 years of his life, he was a prince of Egypt, but he's also a Hebrew. He knew it. Okay. Just look at down there at the, at the composition of the Bible. Uh, Genesis. The first 11 chapters had information that must have been brought by Abraham from Babylon such as the genealogy with the dates, with the years, 
I mean, you must have first-hand knowledge. You have records, okay? So Abraham was at least the source, if not the author, of the first 11 chapters of Genesis, okay? And the later parts, the, th the rest of 39 chapters for Genesis, they were stories of the patriarchs, and they were probably told multiple times in oral tradition and until it was written down. And uh, uh, who would be holding or copying these records? Well, one of the tribes in Israel later became the priests, right? The tribe of Levi, right? And then uh, the Levites, if we take the, the, the years in the Bible literally, the Levites tend to marry late and have children late. Maybe because they spend many years of studying and memorizing things. Okay, so the in the two hundred ten years of Israel in Egypt, if you check the biblical genealogy, you look at the first chronicle, the tribe of Ephraim had a ten generations. So two hundred ten years, ten generations was the average. Twenty one, normal, right? Okay, the tribe of Judah had seven generations. So 210 years, seven generations. What's the average? 30, normal. Okay? And then the tribe of Levi had four generations. From Levi to Moses, four generations. What's the average? 52. Is it possible? Yeah. yeah. But, you know, abnormally high, but, but it's possible. So it makes sense that the Levites were the keepers of the records. They memorize the traditions, probably telling it, you know, and that that's what Genesis, the later part of Genesis looked like. It's well-told, memorized traditions, okay? And uh, Levi might be the, the author of the latter part of Genesis. And when Moses was a Levite, a, a Hebrew that he knows, and the Egyptian prince, I would think he, he could have edited Genesis when he was in Egypt. So he knows where he's from, the origin of everything. And when he was an exile in the Midian, in the dead, uh, he, um, uh, he might have contact with Job, because Job was in Moab, he was in Midian. They are adjacent lands. Think about it. Moses, if he was thinking about why am I suffering, or why is my people suffering for no good reason, okay? And then in the adjacent land, there was a famous person who went through the same thing, who might have written down in poetry form the dialogues, okay? Then wouldn't it be natural for Moses to go and consult Job, see how do you deal with this? Might, right? It might happen. And then Job, uh, and then Moses with divine inspiration, he could have developed and finished writing the book of Job. So that's my theory, my understanding, okay? That Moses, he wrote Job and Psalm 90 uh, when he was in, uh, in Midian, okay? And he wrote Psalm 90 between he was 70 and 80 years old. Okay? And then he wrote the rest of the Pentateuch when, uh, during the 40 years of Israel's wandering in the desert, okay? And after the conquest, uh, the book of Joshua was written by the high priest Eliezer and the uh, his son Phineas, and then after the age of uh, uh, the uh, the judges, um, we have Samuel writing the book of Judges and Ruth. Okay? The book of Judges was written during the early part of 
Saul's reign, but before Saul losing his mandate. That's a time when Samuel has to explain why do we need a king. He says, "Well, before Israel had kings, everybody did what he liked, and look what happened." <laughs> That's the reason why they need a king. Okay, and then after Samuel, uh, after Saul lost his divine mandate, uh, and then the David was appointed. Then he has to explain why appointing David. That's why he wrote Ruth. Okay, and uh, and then David, uh, the King David wrote the first two volumes of Psalms. There are five volumes. He wrote the first two volumes of Psalms when he was uh, persecuted by Saul in the wilderness. Okay, in probably the last ten years of Saul's reign. And then uh, during David's time, uh, it was Gad the seer and Nathan the prophet who wrote the book of Samuel. And then Solomon wrote the Song of Solomon, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job 28, because that ode to wisdom sounds more like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes than Job. Okay, so Job 28 was a later addition, in my understanding, by Solomon. Okay, so interesting. <laughs> no, in this chart of the twelve uh, dynasty Egypt. According to our new understanding of the chronology of Egypt, you can see in the middle the birth of Miriam, and a year before that, that was the beginning of slavery. I have an error here on the、uh, the death of Joseph. It should be 1585. Okay,、uh, so 1585 for the death of Joseph. Correct that. I didn't have time to correct it before I print it out. Okay, he was 17 when he came in. You add 17 to 16. Seventy-eight, and then you minus one hundred ten, you get fifteen eighty-five. Okay, so that's another matching. Now let's talk about Job and his time. Job being in sixteen fifty-eight to fourteen forty-six, two hundred ten years before the Exodus, agrees with the other evidences. Overlaps with the reign of Sesostris the third, fifteen forty-one to fifteen zero two, who was the pharaoh of oppression, a pharaoh who knew not Joseph. Okay. And Joseph was 1565 to 1695 to 1585. Okay, so Job could be the Ayobum of Moab, and Job's friend Eliphaz of Edom, Bildad of Aram, and Zophar of Ammon are between Esau's grandchildren. That's five generations from Abraham and Moses, which is seven generations. Okay, and then、uh, it overlaps with Moses' life in Egypt, 40 years, and in Midian, 14 years. And the latter forty years, they are in adjacent lands, so they could have contacts. And it is possible that when Moses was in Midian, Job and Job was in Moab, they had interactions.、Okay. Now, talk about Job the book. The author is anonymous, although tradition attributes it to Moses. It could have more than one authors. Number one is for the poetic monologue and dialogues. That is chapters three to twenty-seven and twenty-nine to thirty-one for Job and his friends. Thirty-two to thirty-seven for Elihu, and thirty-eight to forty-two for God. They are written from a human perspective, except the last portion, which is from God. But it was heard by Job. Okay,、uh, this could be one author and or a group of authors. And the second is、uh, the narrative framework with the beginning and the end, with a divine perspective and inspiration. And、uh, the third part is the ode to wisdom in chapter twenty-eight, with a style similar to. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Scholars never agreed on the composition or authorship. 
but I'm giving you my opinion. I'm not demanding your agreement, but it's just a presentation of the best that I could understand. I believe that Job and his friends wrote part one, Moses wrote part two, and Solomon wrote part three. Okay. Nothing in the doctrines of biblical inspiration demands that each book must have only one author. It could have, you know, additional modifications, as long as before, let's say, Ezra's time, when, you know, when it's all finished. Okay. And uh, now, Job in the canon. In the Hebrew a Bible, which is called Tanakh, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, uh, there were three sections, okay? Torah is the law, that is the Pentateuch, from Genesis to Deuteronomy. Nevi'im is the prophets, it has two sections. The early prophets, that is today's history book, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth as an appendix, Samuel, and Kings. And the later prophets, that's what we call the prophets today. Isaiah, Lament, uh, Jeremiah with the Lamentation as appendix, and Ezekiel and the Book of the Twelve, which are what today we call the Minor Prophets. Okay, And then there's the writings, Ketuvim. It has three sections as of now. I think originally it was two. Okay, There was a poetry, that's Psalms, Proverbs, Job, and there was a wisdom, that's Psalms and Ecclesiastes. But later, this section was developed into the five scrolls with addition of Ruth, Lamentation, and Esther. So, Ruth and Lamentation were pulled out of the appendix position to be independent books, and then uh, Esther were pulled from the history books later uh, to this section. So, they formed a five scrolls parallel to the five books of Moses. They have the five scrolls. So, later Jewish tradition, they only comment on these ten books. They basically ignore the rest of the Old Testament. Okay? They only focus on the five books of Moses and the five scrolls. And the five scrolls were read on five feasts of the group for each year. Okay. And then the book of history, which is the last portion of, of writings, includes Daniel. It's not counted as, his, as prophecy, but as history. Because Daniel is half and half. It can be put in each place. And it was put in the history here. And uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, two as one and Esther, but later pulled out, and then Chronicle, which was the last book of the Old Testament. It was written by Ezra, the general editor of the whole Old Testament. Okay. So Job was in the poetry portion of the writings, and uh, uh, the position of Job and the Proverbs, they switch in the two Jewish traditions. The Ashkenazis and the Sephardic, one put this ahead, one put the other ahead, but they are always in this portion. Okay. And uh, its canonicity has never been doubted. Because it was attributed to Moses. How can you doubt that? So, now, talking about Job, the theme. The book of Job is about theodicy. The word is composed from two Greek words. Theos, God, and the dikaios, which is, means righteousness. So, is God righteous? That's the issue. Okay, And uh, it demands an answer facing the fact that God at times allowed the, uh, uh, the righteous to suffer and uh, the wicked to prosper, making the law of right retribution either optional or incomplete in time. What's the law of retribution? You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad, right? So we, as humans, we like this cause and effect relationship. That makes it possible to see a rational universe, okay? But 
when it seems to break the law of retribution, when the righteous suffer and the evil prosper, then we get confused. Is we're going to say, where is God, or is God good, <laughs> or is God mighty? Those questions will arise. Okay, so uh, the book proposed the question of the skeptics: How can God be both good and almighty when He allows such evil and suffering? And that is a legitimate question. And many people couldn't answer it because they don't read through the Bible. And then they become or remain skeptic. They never believe. Have anybody read from uh, Bertrand Russell? Have you heard of Bertrand Russell? He was an English mathematician who became a philosopher, one of the most famous modern philosophers. Okay, uh, But don't read his history of philosophy. It's more of Russell than philosophy. <laughs> but he is very famous. Modern people, you know, love him. Uh, he married four times. The first time he married a Christian, uh, uh, Hannah uh, Smith, I think, who wrote one great devotional book. But later he divorced her and then he started to marry, 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 marry. And uh, he, he wrote a book called Why Am I Not a Christian? And the reason he did not become a Christian is because he couldn't answer this question. How can God be both good and almighty when he allows evil and suffering? He said, I don't see an answer. So such a God doesn't exist. That's why he said, I, I die as a skeptic, agnostic. I think agnostics are chicken atheists. They, they, they are atheists in heart. They just don't dare to say it. Um, so it, it's a pity, you know, people who can't answer this question will have a problem with God. Okay. But the Bible does give, give us answer on the theodicy. Okay. And through many means, the book of Job is one mean, okay, and the rest of the Bible another way. Okay. So uh, what I think there is a rational boundary on where your, uh, your rational quest should end because there are certain questions that you just can't answer because you don't have enough knowledge okay and at certain time you have to go to faith to trust to personal relationship okay. and uh, um, so the book of job questions the meaning of life uh, by job the innocence of the suffering by his friends, and the inadequacy of man facing the sovereignty of God. That's by Elihu and God. Okay. So, the big picture of the book. Job gives a picture of an invisible world in which God reigns supreme, but he allowed Satan to attack the righteous man just to prove a point that the righteous believe in God for who he is, not what he does to them. In other words, we love God because he is God, not because he gave us candies. The modern wealth and health gospel is just the opposite. We love God because he gave us candies. That is insufficient as a test for true faith and eternal life. Okay. So God, in, in the book of Job, it portrays God as 
completely sovereign. He limits the boundary of Satan's activity and is not obligated to answer man's questions. So Job had a question and God allowed him to ask. But when God met Job, he didn't answer his question. He asked 70 questions in turn. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the heaven and the earth? Where were you when I tamed the behemoth? Whatever. Okay. So um, it is the duty of man to submit to the sovereign God and trust him as totally good, even in the face of counter evidences. And God will ultimately prove that is good and just. I think this again goes to the purpose of creation. God created the universe in order to form some quantity, a new humanity called the Bride of Christ, who loves Christ for who he is, not what he gives. Okay? And the, the Prince Christ became a pauper in order to find his true love. If you know Jesus and he promised Nothing except that if you are righteous, you will suffer together with him. There's no promise of wealth or health. You might have it, you might not have it. But in the face of such a promise, limited promise, he gives you love. He gives you redemption. He gives you hope. But there's no health and wealth guaranteed for this life. Do you still love him? For his character, for his truth. If you do, you are his true love. You will be with him for eternity long. If you don't, then you don't belong to him. Christ will one day say, I never knew. Okay. This is the purpose of creation, is to expand the love and find the true love for Christ. Okay. And because of that, God has to allow sin, evil, suffering as the filter okay. for his true people. Okay. So God will ultimately prove he's both good and just, but you will never have full proof in this life. You must have faith in the next life, in eternity, in the final judgment, for your question on theodicy to be answered. Okay. Now, there are some interpretive issues on this book. Okay. The book has 100 plus words that never appeared elsewhere in the Old Testament. It is so archaic, uh, we already mentioned, that the Septuagint translator abandoned 400 plus lines. 400 plus lines. Okay. And uh, there are mythical beasts, behemoths, in 40.15 and Leviathan in 41.1. They're translated as hippopotamus and crocodile by modern Bibles, because we don't know what they are. We just translate them as giant uh, well, animals. But if you really look at description, they look like dinosaurs. Giant body, long neck, uh, with uh, with uh, shells, and you know that cannot penetrate, and some of them can actually puff out fire. We know some bugs can puff out fire, you know. So they look like dinosaurs. Okay. Then you have the question: First of all, did dinosaurs live together with humans before the flood? We know the secularists don't believe so. They say dinosaurs died millions of years ago, humans only you know a few thousand years. And then the second question is, did dinosaurs survive the flood? And if they did, where are they now? Okay. So I'm going to tell you my understanding. I believe dinosaurs are nothing but old lizards. Okay. 
lizards like all of the crawlers, okay? Uh, what do you call the crawl, crawling animals? The reptiles, right? All the reptiles, they never stop growing until they die, okay? So big snakes, they're just old snakes, okay? Uh, so before the flood, since humans lived so long, so did the animals, rational, right? Uh, if they have such a long lifespan, those who never stop growing will become giants, okay? But they eat what they eat, you know, they're, they're not necessarily predatory, again. So they could coexist with humans. And uh, after the flood, did uh, Noah put some dinosaur eggs on the ark? I think he could. And then the dinosaurs could live after the flood, but uh, since the age dropped, they would become smaller. Okay? And, uh, and today, some of the animals, like let's say Komodo, dragon, whatever, they could have been you know, dinosaurs before. <laughs> but now they're just smaller. Okay? Uh, and some just died off. That's my understanding. So it, it can match with all the knowledge that we know. Okay. Anyway, and uh, there are there was a unicorn in King James Bible 39.9. And some non-believers will say, hey, your Bible said there were unicorns. <laughs> Laughable. Well, they don't know the unicorns. If you look at the modern translation is rhinoceros. They do have just one form. Okay. Unicorns is just rhinoceros. It's not a mythical and how about the literary features? The book has narrative essays in chapter 1 and 2 and the, uh, the latter part of 42. It is poetic in the middle okay, with the monologues and the dialogues and an ode to wisdom. Okay? However, the connections between the poems are narrative. So we might say that the book as a whole is an essay with inserted poems. Okay? And the, about the structure, here is one way to look at it. If you read the whole book, uh, it's divided into three uh, parts. An introduction and a conclusion with the speeches in the middle. And the speeches are divided into four, uh, well, three parts. And uh, two uh, interviews of God with Satan and two interviews of God with Job. They are symmetric. In the middle, they're dialogues of Job with friends. And that is divided into two parts. Okay? One is four rounds of speeches with Job and the other is four speeches by Elihu. However, if you look at the four rounds, uh, the song of wisdom is kind of out of place. If you take that out, it's a symmetric three rounds. Okay, Job's opening statement, Job's concluding st statement, and the debate with the friends, and that's three rounds. You see, that will be more symmetric. So I can see that the Psalm 28 was inserted, making the first half four parts, and therefore the latter parts of Elihu's speech become four parts. Because the middle two parts could be united together as one part. All you need to do is to put in one phrase, and Elihu said, to make it two parts. Yeah. So, about the structure of Job, it seems that Job 28 is out of place, a later insertion that made Job's talk into four sections. Originally, it was three. It seems that Elihu's speeches can be structured as three rather than four. So, in Job's third round the debate with the friends, an extra problem, okay, the third friend... Zophar had nothing to say. It is either due to missing or misplaced texts, which some scholars believe, or simply that he just ran out of things to say. I think the latter option is the easiest. <laughs> he just had nothing to say. And then uh, the book has the shape of a symmetric hourglass. If you look at the last chart I gave you, which is the vertical one, it has a shape of an hourglass. 
Okay, and then the center is the third part, the ode to wisdom. So this at the end, if you take the book as a whole, as it is now, okay, the the uh, the center point is the ode to thought to wisdom. Before that, the first part is a narrative backdrop, and the, at the end is a narrative conclusion. And uh, and two, around that, there are three rounds of dialogues between Job and his friends, demonstrating the best human wisdom on the issue of suffering and the dialogue. And the symmetric to that are three rounds of monologues by Job, Elihu, and God, showcasing a path to divine wisdom. So, can you understand suffering and sin? Well, you can't unless you have divine knowledge. Okay. So that is our introduction to the book. Interesting? Yeah, hopefully we'll have a good journey as we study through it. God, our Father, thank you for giving us an opportunity to study this relevant book, Job, on the issue of suffering. The world is suffering, and we are suffering, and a lot of people are suffering more than they deserve. And why so? And can we still trust in your righteousness, your goodness? We believe we can. But we have questions, and we want answers, but we don't deserve the answers from you. We pray that you give us understanding through the study of the Bible, and let us learn to be humble and to be trusting, and to transcend the insufficient evidence, and to rise up to a relationship of love and trust to you simply for who you are for what Christ did. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand once again? I want to, you to know that Calvin Best left a little bit earlier because his neighbor texted him saying that a wildfire uh, was blazing out of control somewhere near Calvin and Kim's property uh, far north of Abilene. So uh, they have really good firefighters out there. But would you take just a moment and pray for that situation that it might be under, brought under control? Okay, thank you. Let's continue singing and finish our singing for the day with the last verse of Onward, Christian Soldiers. Onward then, ye people, join our happy throng. Blend with our joy voices in the triumph song. Glory, Lord, and honor unto Christ the King. This through countless ages, men and angels sing. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war. With the cross of Jesus, going on before. Blessing of the Lord. May the love of God, the grace of Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us. Give us understanding, give us power to overcome, 
doubt and uh, skepticism and fear. Let us be soldiers of Christ, marching on to war behind the cross of Jesus. In His name, we pray. Amen. Thank you.